So chapter 24, verse 1 says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting. Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows of six, six, row, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him by a perpetual statute. As we start chapter 24 tonight, we begin with some of the service of the tabernacle and particularly Aaron's responsibilities. So as we look here, we see that the first thing is it says, look at the wording here. It says, Aaron shall be in charge. Then it says again in verse four, he shall be in charge. He of course is the high priest and he has special responsibilities He's in charge. It's on him. It's his responsibility. So first, the pressed oil with the lamps. Now, if you recall, when we broke this down in Exodus, there in the tabernacle, it's rectangular in length. It's, so it's a length of half a football field, about 50 yards. It's the length of a half a football field, but it's more narrow, okay? And so it's rectangular, and two-thirds of it is the holy place, and then the holy of holies, if you'll recall. And there in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant, and we, as we studied that whole Saturday, plus verse by verse, on Yom Kippur, you went in there once a year, Aaron the high priest, for his sins, then for the people's sin, the scapegoat, and all that. But on the outside of that is the veil that separates, and we're told in Hebrews that veil represents Christ, the veil which is Christ's flesh, okay? And then there is the table with the showbread, the altar of incense, and the lampstand. So there's three things in there that were in the second, the entry level that the priest would serve at, and then the area that only Aaron went in. And it's in this area that we're getting description of what Aaron was to do. So it's the perpetual burning. And of course, these all speak of Christ because Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the bread of life, right? I mean, that's what Christ is represented in all this. But what gets my attention looking at this, especially in September when I think of so many different things going on in my personal life. I think of so many different things going on in other people's lives. As I pray for other pastors, Rob McCoy, Ventura County, we've all watched John MacArthur go through what he's been going through in Los Angeles. I think of Jeff Johnson and Downey, Raul Reese, Jack Hibbs, your everyday pastors, um, Hector Mora and Long Beach, not being able to meet. They haven't met yet as a church since COVID began in person. All the laws are contrary to that. You can't do it in a park. You can't meet anywhere. It's a very difficult time. It's a very pressing time. It's a very challenging time. And then I think of all the school teachers that have gone back to work this last week. Some are out of school. Some are online. I mean, Eric's daughter is a first-year teacher, and she's finding her niche with online teaching. Like, in all of her preparation to be a teacher at Vanguard, who would have thought that this is how she'd begin her dream of being a teacher under these circumstances? It's so, as we'd say in surfing, wonky. Wonky is when the ocean's like this. 
Like, it, it, or in Hawaii, they call it morning sickness. It, it, it's just wonky, and you need the trade winds to clean it up, but it's, you can tell it's going to get good later on, but it's just, it's just wonky. There's currents, there's rips. It's, it's wonky. And right now, everything's just wonky. Our, our planet's wonky. Our country's wonky. Our, our economy's wonky. The schools are wonky. The churches are wonky. Our communities are wonky. Our governor's wonky. Our environment's wonky. Look at the sunset yet again tonight with unhealthy air that you can't even breathe. Who'd ever think we'd be wearing masks, not because of the COVID situation, but because the air will kill you right now. It's just, it's all wonky. You wake up every morning, it's wonky, and you're trying to go back to work, and like Ryland did last week, you go back to work at Apple, you finally reopen, you open up for one day your curbside, and then because of the fire, you got to close, and you're closed again. This is our world. Well, Aaron has his responsibilities. This is what Aaron will do. This is what Aaron will do. Twice we're told what Aaron's responsibilities were in this service. And it just reminds me, no matter how wonky it is in the camp of Israel, you still got to get up, go to work as best you know how, and do the things you know that you're called to do. Because when you, as Pastor Chuck would say, you come what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. And you fall back on your stewardship and you know what you're called to do. And for the next decades, couple of decades, as they go through the wilderness and they're doing everything, set up, tear down, people struck down by the Lord this way, these challenges this way, all the things that went on, fighting Og and, you know, Sihon on this side of the river, and all these things that Aaron lived to see, and even near the end of his life, he still had to go in and do this. This was still his job. We don't do our job because it's fun to do. We don't fulfill our stewardships because it makes us happy all the time. We do our job and we fulfill our stewardships because it's what God has called us to do. It's what we're alive to do. We're alive to be saved. And then upon being saved, we're alive to serve and fulfill those things that God has entrusted to us in what we clearly understand. We all have unique distinctions of what our day would entail yesterday on Monday. And we might have things that we've been doing for years, the same job for years. I talk with my good friend Jim O'Connor in Virginia Beach today, and he's got a job with, in the school district of Virginia Beach. He's the one that pastored in Vermont for seven years after we left. And he told me that he's been working for the school district long enough that he's actually uh, set up to get like a pension later on in about 10 years. And so he doesn't want to leave this job now because he's actually got something there. And they just bought a house right down the street from our old house on Brandon Boulevard. And, you know, the kids are growing up and they're just, he's trying to be faithful to church with Jimmy Coates, who used to be part of our youth group back in the day. And he's just trying to do what he's called to do in a crazy time with a mask on. And as I spoke with Jim, I thought, isn't this it for all of us? He was explaining all the stuff they have to do to get the schools ready for opening in Virginia Beach. He's the janitor. He's the guy. He's a, like a, the ground supervisor. And he was saying like, you can't even imagine what you have to do on the elementary level, the middle school level, and then the high school level for the school district where he's working in Virginia Beach. He says it's, it's insane. But yet, what's Jim O'Connor doing tomorrow morning? He's going to wake up and do what he's called to do. And as I've just watched the human experience, 
as I think about what we're going through in our human experience with our fathers, Jennifer and myself, and my mother passing away right before COVID began. And I talk with people who are doing well during this time with jobs. People are buying surfboards, but they're not buying clothes. You know why they're buying surfboards? Because no one's doing the team sports. They're all, all the kids that were on team sports, they're all taking up surfing. So if you make surfboards, things are good right now. Business is good. But my brother, who's 63, can't get a job after being employed his entire life because since COVID shut everything down, there's no more jobs in his field that he made a living in for all those years. It's Walmart and grocery carts or nothing right now. My sister-in-law, who's such an incredible person with doing events at hotels and booking conventions, you think anyone's booking conventions? She's been unemployed for six months and her father's dying. It, it's just so crazy. So you take all that we're all experiencing collectively on the planet, what we're experiencing in this country, what we're experiencing as residents of California, what we're experiencing in Orange County and the local judiciary laws that we have allowing us to be here tonight, code red. And you take all this and what's it come back to? We still gotta wake up tomorrow like Jim O'Connor. I mean, life goes on, doesn't it? You know, people are just, they're still living and dying during COVID. People are making money, people are losing money. People are buying houses, people are losing houses. And in all this, Jesus is our compass that's north, but we have responsibilities. We have tasks and stewardships that we are called to do, whether we're a school in, in school as a student, and you're go, starting online, talking with Sienna Gonzalez the other night in the back row where Nick is right now. She's starting school online for fourth grade and trying to understand what her world was like. It's all wonky. But there's absolute clarity when we wake up and we seek the Lord and we pursue with purpose, passion, and clarity what we know God has called us to do. And Aaron is in charge of getting the oil to the lamp and keeping it burning. And he's in charge of laying out the bread in two rows of six with fresh frankincense and then replacing them every Sabbath. So the application here is there's so much we don't know but I do think as we press into the Lord and seek him with absolute priority and purpose, he's going to make very clear what we're called to do. So if I ask you, what are you in charge of? Can you answer me that? With the Lord? What's your stewardship on this day? Can, can you answer me that? What's the game plan for tomorrow and your stewardship tomorrow from the Lord in your personal life? What's he doing in you with him in your relationship? What's he doing in you with the people you live with that you love and you care about? What's he doing in you with your neighbors? What's he doing in you and through you with your employment or unemployment? What's he doing with you and through you in your church family. 
we are all in charge of things that Jesus gives us to be in charge of, not the least of which is our time and how we manage it. So I encourage us, we may not go before the veil and keep that oil burning and change that bread once a week, but we most definitely are entrusted to be in charge of certain things that only we can be in charge of because they're entrusted to us and they are our stewardship. And I just encourage all of us to be faithful and diligent, to not lose track of that with all the noise going on around us, but to stay steady and on point with what we know we're in charge of as under the Lord and unto the Lord and to be faithful in it. Now we read on after this very interesting event picks up in verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who was cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the strangers as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger, one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed, and they stoned him with stones. And the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. So here we have a historical record in Leviticus of an event happening. This book has not got a lot of historical narrative. It's mostly instructional, but here's the historical narrative. This happened, so this is very interesting detail that we get here in chapter 24. So a man from an unequally yoked parent's household gets in a dispute with an Israelite, and he blasphemes against the Lord. Now, the Lord already gave the Ten Commandments, right? You know, not to use the Lord's name in vain. So that's already been established. And again, it's interesting, like, when we're people of covenant, there's, there's a higher accountability to whom much is given, much is required. And that's why someone who's not the Lord's can get away with certain things at work, and then you make a slight compromise, and you get called out, and you get dragged through it. It's because whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he holds you to a higher standard than this person, because this person is going to be one and done. One life soon will pass, like we we're singing, and they're gone. But we're being prepared for eternity and eternal life. It's already working in and through us, so there's just a different accountability. And so here... This is the accountability in this covenant. Now, obviously, people can blaspheme the Lord all they want, and people do. We've all heard people blaspheme the Lord. We've seen, the most recently, the protesters and rioters chanting, cursing Jesus Christ, and blasphemies against them. Large group this weekend, one of the main riots. Hundreds of people chanting curses against Jesus Christ in America, and they have that right. They do. We, we, can, we choose to bless them and praise them. They choose, we choose to bless and build up. They choose to curse and burn down. And that's just the way it is in America 
in the year of our Lord 2020. But we're not going to burn with the stake, and I don't think there's anything in the new covenant that would tell us that we do anything like that. This is the age of the dispensation of free will, and if people want to curse the Lord, they're going to do that. We've seen lots of people curse the Lord, and people are going to curse the Lord till he comes back. We're actually told in Revelation 9, when it's all going down, like, whoa, 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 woe's number five and six on the trumpet, people still will not repent, and they still blaspheme and curse against the Lord. They're going to gnash the tish right up until the end, until Jesus comes and splits the Mount of Olives and establishes the kingdom. So we can't be thrown off by that. But in the context here, there's a different accountability because it's in the covenant. And by the way, if you curse God, what obligation does he have to keep you alive? Since all things are made by him and for him, and in him all things consist, and for his purpose they exist. Like, the human being that curses God has no purpose in living. Their life is a gift from God. And if they want to curse God, he wants to strike him down. Will the thing say that formed it? What are you doing? Like, our heart is beating right now because of Jesus Christ. He's holding the universe together. And if he wants to let someone blaspheme and curse against him for 80 years, he'll let him do it. If he wants to strike him down in the 20th year, he can strike him down in the 20th year. The person who blasphemes and curses God has no reason to live because we're made by him and for him and for his good pleasure. So the created being that curses the creator has given up and forfeited their very purpose of existence because we're created to know God's love and reciprocate and return God's love. But because his love has a choice, and it always does, there is a choice to blaspheme if one wants to blaspheme. But not for this guy. It's kind of like people thinking God's judging the world or whatever. God doesn't need to judge the world. The world's already under judgment. We're told that throughout the Bible. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness of ungodly men who suppress the truth in ungodliness. We're being given over. Speaking, you know, it's interesting to talk to someone outside your wheelhouse who's really strong in the Lord and hear what they think. The Jim O'Connor is like, I mean, Jim O'Connor and I are like very tight. And he's like, Joey, the whole planet's being given over right now. We're watching it month by month. It's degenerating into a greater depravity month by month. It's like the whole planet's being given over. And it's not that God has to do anything other than remove his blessing. So we choose to be under the government of God. We want God to govern us. So we bless his name. But if people don't want to be governed by God, why, does, why would he be obligated to protect them? He's not. If you say we'll not have this man rule over us like the Jews did to Jesus then why would we be surprised that all hell breaks loose on the planet, on our country? Do you know the worst error in the planet last week, the three cities where it existed? I'm just giving you facts. You can think whatever you want of those facts. The worst error that you could breathe on planet Earth last week, in order, Portland, San Francisco, and Seattle. Now, that's either the greatest coincidence imaginable for this planet right now and in this country, or it's just, if God pulls back, if you don't want him over your marriage and you say we don't want you over our marriage, watch what happens to your marriage. It's the same principle. So if people want to curse God and he says take him outside and stone him, 
take him outside and stone him. And let you who hear it be accountable. And you lay hands on him and you hold him accountable. And let God be true and every man a liar. What you have here is perfect justice in his covenant, on his planet, in his universe, who's holding it all together. And you have accountability because this man's accountable. And the whole rest of the chapter is accountability. Hey, you knock out a tooth, guess what? You lose a tooth. Now, people have pointed out that in this part of the law, it's actually restraint because if someone damages your car, you want to damage their car not equal to your car, but worse than your car, right? So the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth actually has a restraining element in it. It limits it to equality of accountability for what's gone wrong. You kill an animal, you replace an animal. You killed someone, you took someone's life, capital punishment, your life's taken from you. It's all accountability. So before we move on to the next chapter, it's just a reminder that we are all accountable. We are accountable for our actions. And even if we're not held accountable by civil law in our timeline, or even by divine justice in our timeline, it would seem, some people seem to get away with stuff. Honestly, there's some people I wonder why they're alive and why God lets them stay alive when they're liars, blasphemers, and murderers. But that's between him and them. That's not my, that's not my place. That's his place. My job is to stay in my lane and change the showbread and keep the lamp burning, right? That's our job. But sometimes you look at God's job and you're like, wow, like, God is over it all and we're accountable. And though it might seem like we get away with things, we are accountable. And just know this, God is not mocked. As a man or a woman sows, as they sow, they shall reap. So we reap love, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, gentleness, grace. That is what comes back to us no matter what's going on in a wonky planet. But if we want to sow anger and wrath and violence and cursing and screaming and without restraint, then guess what's going to happen to us? That's exactly what we're going to get back. So we want to be very wise to sow the word of God, love, humility, and all the attributes of Christ Stay in our lane, keep the lamp burning, change the showbread, and do what's entrusted to us. It's accountability. That's what we see here is accountability. And this guy, this guy was in him. This guy just decided he was going to curse God. But give Moses and the gang credit because what did they do? It said they sought the mind of the Lord. That's good too. That's a whole other Bible study. That could be a whole message on Saturday night, seeking the mind of the Lord. Put him in the holding cell And let's seek the mind of the Lord. Seek the mind of the Lord for how we're supposed to handle this. And if there's anything that we all need to seek right now in our personal lives, it is the mind of the Lord. But again, for me, the whole cusp of 10, verse 10 through 23 here is just that accountability. And if we hold ourselves accountable and we we submit to the governance of the Holy Spirit in our life, then we're in the place of the blessings with God and how he's running his universe. We pick it up in chapter 25, verse 1. Now we get these special uh, Sabbaths and Jubilee and these things. These are are fascinating things as well. So we pick it up in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come to the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows on its own according to your harvest, you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired men, and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, 
all its produce shall be for food. So that's the seventh year Sabbath. In God's economy and design for this planet and agri-society, he actually lays out here that it's healthy for the soils, the nutrients of the soils, that you can plow and you can plow and you can plow and you go six years, but in the seventh year, you got to let the land heal. There's a healing for the land, and it's been proven uh, in the farming industry, it's the, it's the best way to go. I mean, God knows best, and it's like, we might not be under the law, and no one's going to make the farmers in Nebraska growing corn do this, but I guarantee you, if you have a small farm and you're a little collective farm, if you follow this principle, I'm quite certain that your soil will benefit from it and your produce will benefit from it and you will benefit from it. Just the principle, not because it's a have to, but there's wisdom in whatever God gives in his word and in his law because the law is good and true. The law is good and we're never going to be justified by it. But when I see principles for farming, hey, if I own land and I'm farming as best I can, I'm going to try and follow them to this day because they're there for a reason. And by the way, Israel, of course, is one of the world's largest exporters to this day, right? It's the size of Southern California. Last time I checked it, the third largest exporter of flowers and produce to the entire planet. Verse 8, the year Jubilee. And you shall count seven Sabbath years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of seven Sabbaths of the year shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession. Each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows in its accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. And in the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession, and you shall sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand. You shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, shall increase its price. And according to the fewer years, number of years, shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crop. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So you shall observe my statutes, keep my judgments, and perform them. You shall dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there safely. And if you say, well, what shall we do in the seventh year, since we shall not sow, gather, and produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year. And it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until it produces, comes in, till the production comes in, and you shall eat of the old harvest. The year of Jubilee. Wow. Jubilee. Now, there's no historical record in the historical books of the Old Testament of the year of Jubilee happening or being celebrated. Israel, just a few years ago, pronounced their year of Jubilee. I think it was 2018. They, had their, they, they tried to restore the Jubilee, but the principles of the Jubilee you can't really do because you're not going to redistribute all the wealth in Israel right now in the year of our Lord 2018 or 2020. But the principle of celebration, recalibration, clearing debt, starting over, there's something very cool about that that's awesome, and that's really what it was about. And it was, it was a timeline. It was something that was in front of us or just behind us by which you would gauge the value of property and what property could produce. Because again, property in an agri-society, an agricultural society, is about producing produce. It's about grapes. It's about olives. It's about 
wheat and barley and these things. So it, it gave you a gauge where you basically leased your land, you leased your land out, but someone would buy it, but then it'd be restored to you because God divided between the 12 tribes of Israel and you were a subdivision of your tribe, and this is the land that you inherited. Of course, the book of Ruth goes into this as well, and it was your property. So you come on hard times, you're like, man, we can't, we can't keep the farm, but uh, the neighbor here has been doing really well, and they've been a little bit better managing their resources than we have, but we can sell them the property. It'll get us out of this short-term debt. We're going to have to move to the village and live in the village for the next five years, but this little bump is going to help us and then it gets restored to us in five years anyways, unless old Uncle uh, Abraham down the road here can come up with the dough and we can buy it back at any time for the right price. But technically, it's still your land. But the Lord's going to say it's all his land, but it's land he's given to you, and you can mismanagement manage it, or you can properly manage it, but either way, every 50 years, it rolls back over, it goes back to you, which is kind of cool. So even if you're inept as a parent, and you don't leave your children anything, <laughs> the Lord gives it to your children anyways. Like, hey, your parents are good parents. They did some good things. They're not as sharp as some with estates and trusts and stuff like that. But guess what? It all goes back to you anyways. It's a safety net. And watching the elderly step into eternity in the last 10 years with so many people affected by it, you see some people's parents were really on top of things, and they had things in order, where goal number one is they didn't cost you anything while you took care of them, and they didn't leave you with debt. That's the very least what you'd want from your elderly parents or put upon your children, that you don't take from them down the stretch when they have to take care of you and that they don't have to fund you when you're in a, a breaking down, potentially incapacitated, invalid existence, which can certainly happen. So that'd be goal number one. Goal number two is that you would actually leave your kids or children uh, or people you love, something extra that can bless them and propel them to uh, pursue dreams and, and live a good life that maybe you lived. That would be awesome. I think goal number three would be if you could do that for your kids and people you love in ministry. To me, that'd be the ultimate, right? Like if you leave stuff where you're, you're leaving inheritance for your kids and you're blessing them, and then you're leaving inheritance for people that you co-labor with in the ministry and that you believe in in the next generation, and you're blessing them. You're passing the blessings to your physical descendants and your spiritual descendants. That would be ideal. That's actually my objective in the next 20 years. That would be something I'd like to do. But God made sure whether you're super capable and competent with your resources or not that capable and competent, he made sure you started with something, and even if you mismanage it, it still goes back to you in the 50th year. So you might file bankruptcy, all this other stuff. It's like, don't worry, kids. In 23 years, it comes back to the family. It's, it's wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. It's a recalibration of just making things right. Isn't that beautiful? Like, I think it's really cool that God had this built-in system to make things right and to cover our mistakes, and he had his built-in system to actually ensure that the inheritance did go on to our children and our children's children. You think about it, where it says in Proverbs, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and of course, the greatest thing you can leave is the legacy of faith. Let's be clear about that right away, right? Faith, when you wake up in the morning, you'll talk about the Lord on your front door. When you go in the field, you'll talk about the Lord. When you go on the way, you'll talk about the Lord. When you come home, you'll talk about the Lord. On the Sabbath, you'll talk about the Lord. The greatest legacy we give is faith 
in God. Hebrews 11, they look for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. All of them dwelling in tents. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then all these died, not having yet received the promises, but anxiously awaited for them. And Christ went into Hades and set the captives free. Thus we see them appearing in Matthew in the streets of Jerusalem, their glorified bodies before ascending into heaven. But they lived by faith, and they passed on faith to subsequent generations. That's the ultimate inheritance. But in the year of Jubilee, it makes sure, at least in time, space, and matter, where a lot of real stuff goes down in the human experience, that God has a plan to take care of the subsequent generations. So if a righteous man or righteous woman lives an inheritance to her children's children, their children's children, look how God covered your back on it. God covered your back on it. You can make good investments. You can make bad investments. My brother's made so much money, and we all decided he just didn't know how to manage money. But really, when I flew to Cleveland to bury my mom back in January and sat next to my brother for three days, I realized that the couple of times he made a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, he, he made decisions with that money that looked good, but in the end, they did, it was really bad timing. He just really made the wrong decisions at the wrong time with large sums of money and paid for it. Well, you could have that happen, but guess what? In the year of Jubilee, it's all yours again, right? Could you imagine if the people who originally owned the property at Dana Point, Dana Strand on the hills, if they got that back? Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> hey, we own all these houses right here. This is ours, right? Like, I want you to appreciate the year of Jubilee because it's God's way of recalibrating and taking care of things for subsequent generations. It's God's way of covering our back. It's God's way of making sure everything's going to be okay, even if somehow we haven't. It's God's way of ensuring that the next generation will have the blessings and the opportunities that we had. Now, that's awesome in the law. And that's probably our greatest concern for our children and our children's children right now, right? Will they have the same opportunities we had? My father-in-law bought a house for $16,000 in Cardiff with an ocean view in 1961. That house is over a million dollars now, right? Like, so, but God, God's bigger than inflation, right? I love how God has a plan to just take care of everybody. God has a plan. He takes care of the animals. You're not going to pick your grapes in the seventh year. It's for the animals. It's for the stranger. It's for your employees. It's for everybody. It's for you. Because it all comes from me. You just see the heart of the Lord in the law, don't you? Like, it's, it's, it's so benevolent. It's like the mom, the mom cow and the baby cow. You, don't, you, can't, you can't have the barbecue with both of them on the same day. There's something there about just empathy and, and compassion, even with animals. God's got a big heart. And he says in verse 21 there, if you say, well, how's this going to work? Because <laughs> how am I? Because some people, are, they're fretters, right? They're like Eeyore. Oh, no. How's this going to work in the seventh year? Right? But God says, if you say to yourself, how's it going to work in the seventh year? You know, God's playing... He's a move ahead of you on the chessboard. If you say to yourself, hey, what are we going to do in the seventh year? I'll provide everything you need. What's he saying? Trust in me. What's he saying during COVID-19? Trust in me. What's he saying in 2020? Trust in me. It's a, it's a self-determined choice. So in the world of wonkiness in 2020, we can choose to trust in the Lord. 
what if this all was happening and we're under the law and it's the seventh year where we can't even harvest it? It's like, oh my goodness, I really want to get out there because I'm having a panic attack and I want to go harvest this stuff right now because you don't even know what 2021 is going to look like. We got, we, can we just make a, uh, an exception for the seventh year, Lord? I mean, it's looking really bad like Joseph in Egypt, like the, the skinny cows are coming right now to devour the fat cows. Lord, can we just, I know this, but can we just, can we just, this one time, because it looks really bad, and we've never been here before, can we just haul in the seventh year crop? If you say to yourself, how are we going to be taken care of in the eighth year? You will do what I've told you to do, and I will bless you, and I will take care of you. Now, has God changed? What did Danny pray earlier during worship? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then I will command my blessings on you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth produce enough for three years. So would you rather panic and haul in the seventh year harvest that's worth one year, freaking out, looking over your shoulders with thunderstorms coming? Or would you rather trust in the Lord, let the cows, the neighbors, and the homeless come through and plunder everything and know that God's going to take care of you in year seven, eight, and nine? Because he promises to. We don't need to push the panic button. We just need to keep looking up. Amen? Oh, man, year jubilee. It all gets recalibrated, and it's really a test of faith. Verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And if all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. Verse 24. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, and if his redeeming relatives come to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself has become able to redeem it, then let him count the year since its sale and restore the remainder to the man whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he's not able to have it restored himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. It's all restored, like we were saying. Verse 29. If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year he may redeem it, but... If it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. So that village house with a wall, you know, you live in downtown Manhattan, New York, whatever, downtown L.A., that, that one doesn't get restored. It's a different situation. However, verse 31, the houses of villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as fields of the country, they may be redeemed and they shall be released in Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possessions, the Levites may redeem at any time. See, those Levites are held to a higher accountability, but they got, they got a little extra bonus going here. Verse 33, and if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in Jubilee. So you buy a house from a Levite, you know, all bets are off because the priesthood is different. They get an extra protection on their other assets and property because if Gad and Asher messes up and Naphtali with their property, that's one thing, but the Levites serve the Lord and represent the Lord. It's a different thing. They're set apart, and we know that. So the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in Jubilee back to the Levite. For the houses in the city of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. Verse 34. But the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. So the Levites couldn't even sell their field property, but their houses they could in the city. Verse 35. If one of you or your brethren become poor, falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you 
you shall not lend him your money for usury, usury, nor lend him your food as a prophet. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God and to be your God. So this little, this is almost like a proverb in a way, but this just reminds us loaning money can just create a lot, a lot of tension. You know, co-signing with your children, that's one thing, but co-signing with your business partner, that can, that can create, there's a lot that can go south with that. It's just, I look at this verse, and it just reminds me and affirms, I'm sure Dave Ramsey would have my back on this one, people that are money people, biblical model. You try, if you want to give, give. And if you want to sow bountifully, sow bountifully. If you don't want to give, don't give. God loves a cheerful giver. But I always tell people, if you're going to loan money, be very cautious, because the moment you lend that money, you should, first of all, it's the Lord's. So that makes it tricky right there. But the moment you lend it, you should already resolve in your heart that you may never give it back, which is the very reason why you probably should just be given it. Or as Rob McCoy said, as he's now being fined every week for church in Ventura, they can't take what you've already given. So if everything's the Lord, then no one can take it. So if it's the Lord to give away, give it away. If you feel led that you need to lend somebody money, that's your business. But if it gets choppy and wonky, then that's not that unusual in the human experience for sure. So bountifully, or don't, God loves a cheerful giver. So if you don't feel led, then you don't have to. Don't feel guilty, just do as you feel led. Now the laws concerning slavery, and this ends our night tonight. Verse 39. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and he shall return to his own family. So if in the Israelites... If someone chose to sell themselves into slavery because of financial dire straits, they sign a long-term contract to work for somebody, we already know that if they like the place, they can put the thing in the, the earring in their ear after seven years, and they're all in. They can do that. But if not, they're released in the year of Jubilee. So if they signed a contract, like a military contract, like we do in the military, things like that, you do that, and then you're released on Jubilee. Everything, it, it's, it's all back to you on Jubilee. He shall return to the possessions of his father. Verse 42. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. So the Israelite to Israelite is like family. It's like your family, your extended family. Now, verse 44 picks it up with people other than Israelite to Israelite, and we'll talk about this in a moment. And as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations which are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. This passage is often attacked by people who hate the Bible, saying that God you know, condones slavery, advances slavery. But all you have to do is let the word of God speak for itself, where scripture interprets scripture. So first of all, this is dealing with non-Israelites. Never are they taking people as slaves. In fact, the Jews are warned to not kidnap someone and take them, whether a stranger or their own. That when you take slaves, when like take, for example, back in the 1600s, 1700s, when the African tribes would conquer another tribe, they would seize them and make them slaves and sell them. They would kidnap them and relocate them, just like going on in Sudan and these places right now and many other parts of the world, it's one conquering another and subjecting them. 
But for the Israelite in this passage, it's not Israelite to Israelite where you have a financial burden. You say, you know what? I can't, I can't clear these debtors. I have to sell my, I have to sign a four-year contract. Or like Timmy, when he worked in, in the maritime, I need to sign a one-year deal, go to, go to sea for a year to Malaysia and these places because I've got student loans over my head. So I'm going to go on a ship for a year and make 60000 and clear these student loans. So now my life doesn't belong to me. I signed a contract with, you know, Maresk or whoever, and that's what I did. Or in the military, some people might be getting out, and then they're going to do a four-year renewal because they've acquired all this debt, and they know they can't clear this debt. So you know what? We're going to re-up. We're going to re-pony up with the Marines or the Army, the Air Force, and we're staying another four years. And I know it means a med cruise, but this is the only way we can fix this. So I'm choosing to submit myself to these people and this authority for this long to get out of this situation. That's what happens with the military when you sign on or extend. Well, in the case of the non-Jews, we have to keep in mind, God forbid the Jews to mistreat strangers and foreigners, right? How many times have we seen that? It was the application a couple weeks ago, over and over. So we, we go, okay, well, God says you don't mistreat the foreigners or the strangers. And God says if you kidnap someone, it's capital punishment. So clearly, this is a similar situation where people from other nations or the conquered people would choose to take on that slave position of employment, just like the Israelite the Israelites would do, based out of financial need. So that's what you have here. And whatever you don't understand about this, just know this. They were to treat the strangers with compassion. And if they did not, God would deal with them, and they could never kidnap somebody. So keep that in mind when you look at this, because... You're like, wow, is God in a slavery? Because people have twisted the scripture for 2,000 years, right? I mean, when the Poles conquered the Russians, when the Lithuanians conquered the Estonians, when the Prussians conquered the Dutch, you know, they all, they all had state churches. They had to justify what they did. Oh, they twist these things out of scripture, out of context. It's so not the heart of God to hold somebody against their will. That's just so not the heart of God because God gives us a free will and gives us a choice. And that we know for sure. So anyways, that's that on that. You know, In fact, it actually is saying that whether it's family relations that work for you or strangers and employees, you got to treat everyone well. You shall not rule over one another with rigor. It's, it's treating people with respect and dignity. Verse 47. Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, well, that could happen too, right? It's reverse and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner, that's a non-Jew, close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, after his soul, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who's near of kin to him in the family may redeem him. Or, if he's able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price, it's like getting out of a contract. You sign a contract in the military, and you're getting out of it. That's literally what it's like in verse 50. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant. If there are still many years remaining according to them, he shall repay the price of his redemption from the money with which he was bought. And if there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, and according to his years he shall repay him the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant. He shall not rule with rigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So we close with this thought yet one more time for the people of covenant. 
This is a get out of jail card right here. That's what this is. The last thing we said here, no matter how bad, no matter how mismanaged we have done with our personal, no matter how much we've trained wrecked our personal life, all the relationships and everything in it, in this covenant, they all get a get out of jail card on the year of Jubilee. You might have got one at 20. If you live to be 70, you might get another one when you're a senior citizen, right? Got one at college age and another one when you're 70. Get out of jail twice. You live long enough, your Jubilees match up for you properly. That's how it worked. But doesn't God give us a lot more than one get out of jail card? What if we had to wait every 50 years for a get out of jail card with God? How many times has God gotten you out of jail? How many jams we've gotten in that he's bailed us out of that you know of, let alone the ones you don't even remember and can't even really bring back to recollection? God is constantly redeeming us from our faults, our mistakes, our shortcomings, and our folly. He's constantly recalibrating our life to bring us to a closer walk with him and greater character of him in our life. It's like year of Jubilee every day for the church of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Isn't it? Like, seriously. Isn't it like your experiences, all the failed relationships, all the failed financial things, all the failed promises that didn't come to pass, and has not God, through faith in Jesus Christ, redeemed you from every one of them? Hasn't he been gracious and merciful with our shortcomings and our mistakes? Hasn't he shown us the spirit of jubilee day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? The answer is yes. Jesus Christ is our year of jubilee. His blood is our year of jubilee. His grace, his forgiveness, the power of the Holy Spirit is our year of jubilee. So we don't need to go back. We're going forward. And what all this is a shadow, but we really have the fullness of it. He bails out our bankruptcy all the time, spiritually and practically. The Lord is good. Get out of jail card. I've used a lot of them. And you wonder if there's still more. And there you are. You wake up. His mercies are new. Every morning. Wow, another year Jubilee card. Here you go. I love you, daughter of the king, son of the king. Lord, thank you for your word and its application to our lives here tonight.